stick it in that. Say hello to your adoring fans. <laughs> hi, you guys. I, I, um, I really thought absolutely no one would be here because everyone would think it was at 7 p.m. And so we would show up and it would be a completely empty house. There's another uh, shift coming at 7 <laughs> So I know. Um, am, I, am I echoing crazy? Where should I put this? Um, thank you, Skylight, for having me. I've never read here and I've always wanted to, so this is a thrill. And... Um, and it's also just kind of a crazy thrill that the book is out and real. It's I've had kind of a hell of a year, and um, and it's a really nice thing. And I'm really happy to be in LA where it's hot and I can wear a little dress. So <laughs> um, I'm gonna just read a little bit first before Meredith and I talk. Um, so the novel centers around a gestational surrogacy and the four couples involved in the gestational surrogacy, although it spans 30 years, so that's not all that's going on. But um, the character that I'm going to read about is named Gretchen, and she is the egg donor in the situation, the older sister of one of the two dads um, who are going to raise the baby. And she is um, on the verge of basically constantly fantasizing about filing for divorce because she's recently figured out that her husband has been cavorting with a Russian escort service. So um, so that's probably about all you need to know oh, for this. A mail service, right? No, no, oh, that no. changed. <laughs> that changed. <laughs> you have to read the new version, Rob. <laughs> Dan got his hands on the book. A lot of this is a reader participation. Totally, event. exactly. Feel free to tell me what you think I should have done. <laughs> All right. Suddenly, Chad is the cruise director of Gretchen's life. Going through pregnancy herself and then nursing a newborn was less demanding than her brother has become, calling her daily with litanies of insurance information and the surrogate Emily's work schedule, which Gretchen must accommodate. Emily needs to be knocked up in October so that she can deliver in the summer when she's off work. Chop, chop. <laughs> on what has she has started to think of as an impulsive move born of cocktails on an empty stomach and the despair of being in a room full of senior citizen wasps, Gretchen now shoots Pergonol into her thighs until she is bruised like a junkie. The hormones make her skin break out and Troy is horrified. You should start going into Neiman's to get your makeup professionally done, he tells her. The only time your makeup ever looked good anyway was at our wedding. Neiman Marcus is not even open at 8 o'clock a.m. Even Jennifer fucking Aniston surely does not have a professional makeup job at the crack of dawn daily. Gretchen wrestles with whether Troy truly means what he suggests, whether he actually considers this a viable option, or if he's only striving to be cruel. When she repeats his remarks to Chad, her brother says, his shiftless ass lives off our money and he can't even pretend to be polite, as though Troy feigning niceness out of greed would be a perfectly acceptable solution. <laughs> Chad adds, God, I hate conflict. I don't know how you handle it, Gret. Today is her phone interview with the psychiatrist. Say as little as possible, Miguel coached her. Missteps apparently a given should she give herself free reign. His interview has already taken place. The fertility center takes care of all these details. Attorneys for the surrogate, the dads, the, do the egg donor. 
a contract has been drawn up in which Gretchen is to relinquish her legal claims on the child. Another contract for the surrogate, stipulating not just her lack of rights to the baby, but what kind of compensation she will receive. The going market rate seems to be about 30 grand, but this Emily woman will not accept more than 10. She isn't doing it for the money, Chad said, as though this makes sense. What the hell else would the girl be doing it for? She's an old friend of Miguel's, but Gretchen has known Miguel for 10 years and never heard of Emily until now, so how good a friend can she possibly be? The situation is inexplicable. Gretchen is donating an egg to her brother. The offspring will be part of their clan, even if the situation in which she's found herself makes little sense to her on an emotional level. It looks good on paper. Are you on good terms with your parents? The psychiatrist asks on the phone, and Gretchen resists the urge to say, define good. <laughs> Clearly that would not fall under saying as little as possible. Very good terms, Gretchen says dutifully. We're a close-knit family. My parents are very involved with my son. It is all true. Truth floats on the surface of things, with subtext beneath, hanging off the words like a diagrammed sentence. Very good terms. <laughs> we lie to each other about everything, and therefore everyone is comfortable and happy. <laughs> happy, of course, being a euphemism for a lack of anxiety. Anxiety, of course, being controlled by various prescription pills, <laughs> which, unfortunately, my husband refuses to take and instead kicks the dog when his anxiety reaches unmanageable proportions. Unmanageable proportions occurring, that is, mainly every day. <laughs> including for the dog who has taken to pissing on the carpet which causes my husband to kick it did you mention my parents? oh yes, we're on very good terms we're a close-knit family my mother is a very annoying person so her so-called friends can only tolerate her in small doses and therefore the lion's share of coping with her is left to our nuclear family by which I mean me, since my father is off playing golf and having martini lunches, and my brother, despite being gay, is still of the male persuasion and therefore mainly useless. <laughs> Every time the phone rings, my husband says, there's fucking Elaine ringing her bell. Now when the phone rings, Gray says, there's grandma ringing her bell. We managed to eliminate the fucking Elaine part after Troy wa washed Gray's mouth out with soap the first time he said it, even though Gray was only repeating what he'd heard his father say. Oh, did I mention repeating? It's a bit of an issue around here, as in my son is a parrot. If you read him the Gettysburg Address, he'd be walking around the house reciting it from memory within half an hour. Instead, most of what he repeats consists of imperatives that I should get my makeup done at Neiman's and that the dog is a filthy animal bringing diseases into the house, even though it never ventures further than our backyard. I suppose at least Gray only got his mouth washed out with soap and didn't get kicked. Although for the remainder of the night, I thought obsessively about that movie that with Farrah Fawcett, The Burning Bed, and how immensely satisfying it would be to burn the house down while Troy was asleep. How all I would need to do is send Gray out for a sleepover and we would be all set. Except Gray has no friends at whose houses he could sleep. And I'd have to leave the dog inside and let it be burned to a crisp, since evacuating the pets is one of the surest signs of arson. <laughs> which might not be the worst thing, except for the Gray is more attached to that pissing dog than he is to us. <laughs> my parents are very involved with my son. <laughs> no, stupid, there's no subtext here. Don't you recognize sarcasm? <laughs> the interview's mostly painless. 
Gretchen ignores the ringing doorbell to complete the call and then hangs up relatively certain she has not sabotaged Chad and Miguel's hopes for parenthood. She trots to the door to see if there's any sign of who was there and finds a package at her feet from UPS. The address label reads Troy Underwood, but this stops Gretchen not at all. Any package in the mail is a golden opportunity. Perhaps it will be an inflatable doll with a Russian flag right above its vagina. <laughs> then she could photograph it and give it to her future shark attorney to, to keep in her hypothetical divorce file, which is becoming, in her mind, as crowded as a hope chest. She rips open the packaging. At first, she has no idea what this thing is. It looks like an oversized flashlight, like something you might bring on a camping trip, which makes no sense given Troy, who would probably wear Prada on a camping trip, would never go on a camping trip. For God's sakes, even when he has been on, on vacation somewhere like the Four Seasons Punta Mita, he spreads all his luggage out in the garage on hefty bags and airs it out for a full 24 hours to let the germs dissipate before he will let the bags back inside the house. Only when Gretchen reads the warranty information does she realize that what she's holding is a blue light, the kind used in forensics on TV crime dramas. Instantly, a shudder runs through her. Jesus Christ, Troy must be planning to kill her for the insurance money and then use this to make sure he's eliminated all the evidence. Frantically, Gretchen checks the receipt to see if he used his credit card. If he's left a trail of evidence, he has. For some reason, this makes Gretchen's heart steady, though her hand is still gripping the wall. That fucked her. Just let him try and kill her. She will call Chad and tell him about the blue light so that Troy's stupid ass will be busted and sent to prison the moment she turns up missing. It takes about 30 seconds or so for Gretchen to realize that she, dead in this scenario, does not exactly emerge triumphant. <laughs> Gretchen marches into Troy's study. Study being a euphemism since Troy does not work other than the occasional crappy product endorsement of has-been athletes and since he has not, for the entire duration of their marriage, read a book. She does not knock, just bursts in. Troy is at, the is at the computer, though he's not doing anything useful to her future divorce case, like jacking off to cold world porn. He seems to be browsing the travel and leisure website, and he doesn't look up when she enters. What the fuck is this, she demands, throwing the blue light half across the room at his desk, where it knocks down a photo of Gray. Troy jumps, but in only a second, his alarm turns to enthusiasm as he grabs for the light. What's the matter with you, he says. Why would you throw something with glass and batteries? I paid 300 bucks for this. Do you have to run around like some parody of a hysterical woman every single minute of every single day? Why are you ordering a blue light for $300 off the internet, Gretchen demands. What do you need a blue light for? Are you planning to bury bodies in the basement? Troy is grinning. He stands holding the light out to her like an offering, despite having just called her hysterical. It's for the dog, he explains, bouncing up and down a little in his mirth. I just know those carpet cleaners haven't gotten everything out. Those guys were careless. You could tell by looking at them. It was like Cheech and Chong came to clean the rugs. I can still smell urine hanging in the air. I know those carpets are still contaminated. So we can have them come back. We'll show them all the spots they missed. And then we'll have them redo it. We'll check it again with the light while they're still here. We we will not stop until all the piss is gone. <laughs> it is possible, Gretchen realizes, that the scenario in which Troy was planning to murder her was actually preferable to this. <laughs> you have totally lost your mind. 
Why, Troy says pleasantly. Look, just because you don't care anything about your personal hygiene, I mean, fine, maybe that's why you have acne like a 13-year-old. Excuse me if I don't want to walk around in a river of dog piss in my own home. I have acne because I'm on freaking hormone shots. Gretchen hears her voice, hysterical, just like he said. I'm trying to help my brother have a baby. I have other things to think about besides whether the dog has an accident and some shadow of a shadow of a germ hasn't been eliminated, even though we've had the carpet professionally shampooed twice. Fine, Troy says. Go ahead, eat your lunch straight off the piss-soaked carpet for all I care. I happen to be concerned for our son's safety and would rather he not get some disease from an outdoor animal urinating in his house. Carrot is not an outdoor animal, Gretchen screams again. All dogs go to the bathroom outdoors. The fact that we let Carrot into the yard does not make him an outdoor animal. You don't even make any sense. It's like you're on some campaign to drive me insane. Troy snorts. You don't seem to need any help on that front. Gretchen feels a series of small explosions going off inside her brain. She is dimly aware of biting the insides of her cheeks so hard that she can taste a metallic pre-blood along her tongue. She and Troy are supposed to attend one of her biggest clients' weddings tonight. They won't know many people there, but it will be an outstanding opportunity to drum up new business, given that she will be introduced to everyone by her professional capacity. This is my accountant. Gretchen Underwood, and Gretchen cannot show up stag. If she picks up the blue light right now and makes sure to rectify her earlier error of not damaging it by proceeding to beat Troy about the head and shoulders with it, she will look like A, a pathetic old spinster at the wedding, or B, a predatory woman out, out to have affairs with all the other women's husbands should they hire her to do their books. Not that she is much of a threat with her adolescent acne and her mannish pantsuits. Still, a husband is a vital necessity at such affairs, and if her days of having a husband are, are numbered, she needs to score all her clients that she can in between rushing into the bathroom to stab her leg with a needle and elevate her risk of cancer with hormones, that is, so that her brother can have the bright new start to his life that Gretchen, once upon a time, believed she was having when in the 11th hour of her youth she got pregnant with Gray. She's not sure whether she pities Chad and Miguel or whether she wants to kill them with envy. Something is clearly wrong with her, with this egg-donating master plan. Don't think, don't think. If you slow down to think, you are doomed. Instead, she slant, storms out of Troy's office, poor terrorized carrots scuttling out of her way in the kitchen as though expecting a foot to the ribs. Against the kitchen counter, Gretchen leans, gasping irrationally. She needs a glass of wine. But even as she is thinking this thought, she walks right past the wine rack to the freezer where the old bottle of Kettle One has barely an inch left, but a new bottle rests beside it, frosty and untouched. Gray will not be out of the day school for four hours. She has time before she has to drive. <laughs> wow. Um, so uh, I made a list of all the prescient subject matter that you cover in this book that con constitutes Donald Trump's worst nightmares. <laughs> Very That's the goal. Ahead of the time, yes. So we have gay families, we have immigration, we have reproductive technology, we have interracial marriage and children who aren't robots who live to serve their abusive and psychotic parents. Um, <clears throat> so I'm wondering, did you start with a list of social issues that would um, 
demolish Donald Trump if only he would read your book? Or did you start with a family story that then grew to encompass... Well, the destruction of Donald Trump is indeed a worthier goal than probably any I've ever had. Um, no, I mean, it's, you know, of course I, I, I didn't have any issues in mind. I just, um, some friends of mine had done a gestational surrogacy uh, it's nine years ago now, so I mean, not, not recently, but it had always stuck in my mind kind of the the way the process began, so idealistic, so big chills, so sort of we all feel great about ourselves and then complications ensue. And even though they're not the same complications as are in this book, um, you know, I just was interested in the way, in the juxtaposition of different ways we make families. I mean, I have um, two adopted children. One of my best girlfriends has is a single mom who adopted from Ethiopia. Another, um, another the pair that I'm talking about have two children from a gestational surrogate. I mean, the American family and what constitutes normal um, is just a very different beast now. There is no normal, particularly in urban environments. And um, and I, I wanted to write about how that impacted different characters in the book. And mm. I, I really didn't have any political agenda. I think art is political, but it but art is not politics, so mm -hmm. it's, um, yeah. I think, I mean, how many people here have read the book so far? Yeah. Oh, Dan Smetanka has read your book. <laughs> I know, yeah. So Dan good to know. Has memorized my book. <laughs> Can you like... recite it backwards from the last line? Um, it's, what really amazed me is that you are able to tackle all these very political and very um, broad-reaching subjects and still, the book still reads to me like multiple love stories and that's kind of amazing. I wonder if you could say anything about the, ju you know, the juxtaposition or how you wove in these big ticket items with the love stories that are in them? Um, you know, I mean, I think one of the biggest issues to me is that no character should exist for a cause of representation. Mm. Um, so, you know, yeah, I have characters who are gay, bi, Latino, straight, wasp from the suburbs like I have a lot of you know an Irish playwright like I've got a lot of different types of characters in here um, and one of the things that I see and know is that when you're writing about say like a white straight man no one ever expects that your white straight man embodies all white straight men like that they're meant to instruct or present uh, you know a template for change or that they're meant to educate like there is nothing they're just a character and um, so I really just on a broader level set out to write characters and um, and the first thing with any character is what do they want badly and what mm. stands in the way of what they want badly and usually of course they stand in the way of what they want badly and in addition to other things um, so you know I mean, I was trying to explore in the novel various forms of desire. I've explored sexual desire a lot in my work, um, always, but also like the desire... Only in your work? I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the desire for, for family, the desire for money, the desire for a different life, um, the desire for your children to somehow 
be a mirror of you in a way that they simply will not accommodate because they're actually human. And um, unless and they're Donald Trump's children. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, so so I tried to come at everyone in terms of what do they desire and what are their demons and what make them makes them tick. And I think that particularly when you're well, not particularly always when you're writing any character, including when you're writing a character who doesn't sort of represent the dominant sort of like white straight character from literature um, you always have to be fearless about fucking up and you always have to be fearless about making them flawed mm. um, that you can't ever try to present some utopian vision I mean Janet Burr always says in fiction only trouble is interesting and that's just true no matter who you're writing so I mean I wanted to get at what they love and what prevents them from getting it and how they're screwed up and what chances there might be to change and all hmm. of that. So you took the story from a real life story of real life friends of yours. Yes. Did that, um, how did that make it harder or easier to create characters who were not those people? It definitely, so Chad and Miguel, the fathers in the book, um, actually, I mean, they're, they're based on two very close friends of mine who read the book at, at every step of the way, but they're also based on characters from my second book, a short story collection. There's a story called How to Marry a Wasp about their commitment ceremony in there. So they're characters I've been working with for a really long time, and um, and so in a way, when we first all, as this group of friends, had this surrogacy experience, and I thought I was going to write a book about it, I was a little paralyzed by the closeness of Chad and Miguel to the actual guys that I'm close with. And I think the reason it took basically probably eight years for me to start really writing the book seriously was that I needed to get a great deal of distance, not just from the real situation, but even from the previous story I had written about mm -hmm. them, from, from thinking that I somehow had to be held to facts about Chad and Miguel. Um, and it wasn't until Lena's voice really started coming to me unbidden, you know, where you feel like you're taking dictation, like you feel mm -hmm. like you need to pull your car over and write it on a <laughs> napkin or, you're, you know, or it's gone. Um, once Lena started talking to me, I, um, I knew I could write the book because suddenly there was something driving the book that was very different than this kernel of the real-life mm -hmm. event. And did the real-life Chad and Miguel have any input for you? Did they get attached to how those characters would be portrayed? So um, the real life Miguel read many versions of the book and was in some ways even like a bit of a consultant on the book. I mean he lived in Venezuela he you know he had certain experiences that I didn't have access to so um, but never tried to impact plot or be like wait I didn't do that or like I would never do that like he didn't do any of that I mean he's not a writer but he has a very artistic sensibility and he was willing to sort of let that character go wherever he would go and I mean you know most of of course the plot level is not is not anything that ever actually happened mm -hmm. to him so so the inevitable question that I must ask about autobi autobiography in this in this the book. <laughs> so we have a really fucked up marriage. We have divorce. We have breast. Well, we have cancer, not mm -hmm. breast cancer. Right we have infidelity. 
Mm-hmm. We have mental illness. Mm-hmm. Just nod things. or shake your head. As uh-huh. I, <laughs> if I just nod and shake my head, it's not on the podcast. Um, so, I mean, so of course, like the cancer, obviously, I know a lot of you people in this room, so it's not exactly a secret that I have had breast cancer for, you know, I was diagnosed the day after Thanksgiving last year, so it's been almost a year. But that wasn't true when I was writing the book. Um, I also got a divorce in the last year. That wasn't true when I was writing the book. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, like sometimes life imitates art instead of the other way well, around. Well, the phrase, and, be careful what you wish for, I always feel is be careful what you write. Yeah. It's, um, <laughs> I mean, uh, the cancer and the illness in the book um, it was mainly impacted by the fact that one of my best girlfriends died very suddenly of ovarian cancer in 2011. I mean, she was diagnosed in August of 2011, and she died in pretty much the exact manner that Isabel dies in the book. Um, Sorry for the spoiler. Um, But, um, you know, four months later. I mean, much sooner than anybody expected. And she and I had been like sisters. And, you know, there are just things that happen in all of our lives where it's like that's a schism, that's a before and an after, and nothing is ever the same. And that was one such thing. I mean, that was a a big one for me. And, um, And so the the idea of loss and mortality and what do you want your life to be as you approach middle age like those were all things that were extremely urgent and intense in the book and extremely urgent and intense in my life but later um, you know later um but i guess gestating at the time mm-hmm. that i was writing the book so yeah so your next book will be about cats who never outside their litter box. Everybody tells me, write about someone who wins the lottery. Like, if if you write about happier things, your life is going to be awesome. But, like, who the hell wants to write about happier things? (laughs) Well, speaking of happier things, um, one of the things that I found incredible about the book was your description of a psychotic break. Um, And I'm not going to ask you whether you have experienced that, but I am interested to know how you got this. And I just wanted to read this one paragraph about, if I may, Sure. Um, This is um, a character in the middle of one. For me, it's as though no time at all has passed, as though we're circled back exactly to where we began, and the loop of dialogue can be rejoined with everything in between edited out like splices of tape on the cutting room floor. Except now, weak Michigan sunlight hits the gray motel curtains, whereas the last I knew it was barely past midnight. The last I knew we were in bed holding each other like drowning children, whereas once I became aware of myself again, I'm standing alone with a TV antenna in my hand and nothing in the room seems like it's in the right place. I know right away what has happened, except I don't understand the time schism. Because if I really had an episode six or seven hours in duration, I would be in a hospital, wouldn't I? If for six or seven hours I have been talking to voices inside my head, taking things apart, moving furniture, tremoring and twitching and pacing, while you sat in a Michigan motel room watching me, I cannot think of any possible reason you would not have taken me away. Wow. Um, How'd you do that? Um, well, there's a lot of answers to that question. I mean, um, so I don't personally suffer from psychotic episodes, um, but I grew up with a father who did, um, and I've been close to people who do, and so I've witnessed 
quite a few of them. And but from the outside, this is from the inside. That's what amazed me. I guess um, I'm very. I think I think this is true of all writers, but I mean I'm very interested in people and what it's like to be in someone else's skin and head. Um, I ask a lot of questions. I'm maybe freakishly not made uncomfortable by certain things. Um, and so, you know, I, I, Todd is like... <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so you know, you you learn people when they let you learn them, hmm. and when you live with them, and when you bear witness to things, you know. Hmm. So, um, yeah. I mean, I was holding onto my head so it wouldn't fall off when I was reading that section. I thought it was really Thank you. incredible. Thank you. Um, and now switching to another topic that will make at least one person in this room miserable. Um, you've g- changed publishers. You went from Algonquin to Counterpoint. And um, there are a couple of writers in the room, a couple of writers who are Counterpoint authors, and a couple of writers who are Dan Smetanka people. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little about the process of working with the legendary Dan oh Smetanka? <laughs> just to ensure oh, he hates both I? of us for can life. I? He is so not going to hate us. So, so <laughs> I was just, I, I was just saying. I, someone asked me about this at my Chicago release party, and um, you know, so when I was. When I had basically just been kicked out of bed by Algonquin for the book not being, you know, commercial or being too dark or being whatever they were worried that it was, and I I knew I was going to have to shop it again. Um, we were all at UCR, Palm Desert, and Todd and, and Dan were doing a talk, you know, at the front of the room. And I mean, I had known Dan for years and kind of peripherally and heard him talk about writing and, you know, had been a fan of many of his writers and Todd and Josh Moore and people had told me, like, he made me a better writer, he kicks your ass, he makes you better. And I passed Rob a note and was like, why the hell do I have to shop my book? I just want to, <laughs> I just want to work with Dan, you know. And, um, and of course, you know, your agent doesn't let you just do that. They make you shop your book. But, your agent wants 15%. But, but thankfully, <laughs> I got to work with Dan after all. So, um, so, you know, it was kind of my desire from the beginning. And sometimes the world just aligns. And, and indeed, like one of the reasons I wanted to work with Dan was because people told me that he had absolutely tormented the living fuck out of them and that like they wanted to die because he was making like I mean I think Josh had said something like he's he's were either like pounding my work into like unintelligible hamburger meat or were or were like making something amazing and I wanted that I had never I had never had that this is my fourth book and I mean I've worked with good editors but nobody who I would have said like oh my god they made me a better writer like they they changed the way I think about you know structure and plot and character like I wanted that I'm almost 50 and I was like give me that bring it on and he really 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 did um, and um, you know and I mean one of the first things that he did was that there is a there is a character Emily who is the gestational surrogate the who carries the pregnancy and um, 
Lena, the overarching narrator, is having an affair with her husband, Nick, and so in the original version of the book... With Emily's husband, uh, with, with, yes, Not with, having an affair with her own no, husband. No, having an affair with Emily's husband, Nick. <laughs> and, um, and in the original version, Lena keeps trying to write Emily's point of view, and she only gets a few sentences in, and then she's just like, oh, God, I, I just can't. I can't. Like, I'll try this later. And, um, and Dan was like, yeah, no, that's bullshit. That's a cop-out. We're going to write her. Like, we are going there, and, like, we're going to make her not what anybody expects or what Lena expects or what anybody thinks she would be. And, you know, there were a lot of ways that he helped the book enormously, but I think the addition of Emily's point of view was is probably number one. Like, it was, I try not to be self-censoring or fearful as a writer, but I see, looking back, that I was self-censoring and fearful about writing this character's point of view and that he wouldn't tolerate it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how, this is something we talked about a little bit earlier, that, um, you know, there is your book and there is your editor. And mm-hmm. so how, do, how did that process work between you and Dan in such a way that you felt you were improving your book and not just sort of submitting your book to the will of someone who's going to publish it? So, of course, you know, first of all, obviously, the fact that the person has already agreed to publish it <laughs> and you're not, you're not sort of like doing a revision and maybe they'll take it. I mean, because I think because both things exist in the publishing world. And so, you know, Dan and I already knew we were working together and the book was coming out. So it wasn't as though I ever felt like, oh, if I say no, CounterPoint's not going to publish my book, you know. But um, the reality is, like, so we haggled a lot about certain things. Um, we haggled a lot about the character of Emily and how she was going to manifest and, like, different things. We, you know, we would have very passionate, long phone conversations in which we would analyze all the characters as though they were real people who we were gossiping about in our lives. And, you know, and it was amazing. Um, But really, in the final analysis, there's only one scene in the book that Dan had been like, well, we need to cut this scene because X. And I was like, we're so not cutting this scene because Y. And that was the one thing that I was like, no, I'm not doing that. But really, in most ways, I... I took his advice, if not always to the letter of exactly how he said to do it. I identified that if Dan is seeing that something needs to be done here, even if I don't do exactly what he said, he's identifying a weakness in the novel and I need to revisit this part. And so I think he was mainly right about most of those things. Since uh, the Dan Syndrome, capital D, capital S, is so rare and quaint and archaic in today's publishing world, how did that make you a better writer? I mean, so one of the things, I mean, obviously as many of us in this room, uh, you know, I mean, the, the book has a plot. I believe in plot. But I also... You know, I get so caught up in the characters. I get so caught up in the psychology of the characters that I'm just sort of like, well, you know, like, I'm going to just talk about, like, all these things they want and think and da-da-da, and then there's, like, this thing that happened to them in the past. And Dan was amazing at being like, we want all that. Like, that's why I'm taking the book. That's what makes the book great. But, like, but... 
we've got to pull this thread. Like you are digressing. You are like it's taking you too long to get to this thing. Like, what does this have to do with this? And and I'm I am a very digressive writer. I mean, like everyone who reads my work on the front line knows that like someone assigns me to write a 700 word review and I've got to chop it down from 4,000 words. Like I'm <laughs> kind of insane. And um and so that was. I mean, I feel like of you know. In many ways, Dan helped me with the writing of this book, but one of the ways was to see how you could keep building on plot momentum without it being sacrificing of psychology and depth of character. Mm. And that was, you know, that's something I've always, I mean, you know, I've been writing for a long time, but that's something that is one of my struggles as a writer is that I get so into the person's head, I can get so cerebral that I can forget things actually have to happen. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, last question, and then we'll talk to the folks. Um, if there was one thing that could happen in the world as a result of your writing this book, you get two things. How would the world change things. from this book? I mean, you know, God, I mean, you know, this just like sort of begs you to say like lofty shit that's never going to happen. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, because it, it, it's true, it's you wish. know, it's like, I mean, you know, the book is set in 2008-2009, so some of what I would wish for these characters has actually come to mm-hmm. be. I mean, gay marriage is legal ev- everywhere now. You know, like at the time that Chad and Miguel are trying to have a baby, one of them would have to go into an agency and pretend to be a straight single man and basically perpetrate a fraud in order to get a baby adopted somehow you know I mean like things have changed for the better in a culture in which we're constantly always think that things are changing for the worse and that everything is going to hell in handbasket like many things actually have gotten better from this book but um but I think just for me like I wanted to write about I really want, I don't know if I'm going to articulate this properly, but I really wanted to write about a very diverse set of characters where the fact that they were gay or the fact that they were Latino, like, wasn't the plot of the book. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I feel like there was a period in sort of like the 80s, the 90s, when like, multiculturalism and, and, you know, different voices in literature were first emerging, where it was sort of like everyone justifiably was wanting to tell their story but it was like every story you'd read about you know gay characters for example would be like a coming out story Mm -hmm. and you know and every story you would read about you know like characters who weren't white waspy American people would be sort of like oh let me immerse you in the exotic world of like my my home culture and it's like sometimes particularly in urban America in 2008-2009 like we're all just living our lives like this is like we all exist within multiple identity frames and this is not like no one thing is our whole identity our whole life or the thing that everything that happens to us is channeled through Mm -hmm. and so I really wanted to write about kind of like what it is to be a contemporary American person for whom identity is a multiple, you know, like a, a very varied thing. And um, I hope that maybe it would make anybody else feel like, yeah, we can do that. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's great. Let's say thanks to Gina first and then. <laughs>
I'm jealous of all of you who haven't read the book. You have that to look forward to. Okay, so we have questions, comments. Yes. Can you talk a little bit more about like putting on the plot hat and like the difference between like your approach to plot as opposed to character and like how you kind of work with that? Um. <clears throat> So one of the challenges for me is that almost everything I write exists in multiple time frames. Literally almost everything I write exists in multiple time frames. So even if it's a 15-page short story, there's probably not only one linear story. I am kind of obsessed as a writer with, like, how do the demons of the past bear on the present moment and the choices we make and, like, our opportunities to make a different choice or to keep making the same choice that keeps getting us in deeper. So one of my challenges to plot is that it's hard to have forward propulsion exclusively when first of all you probably have like five point of view characters because I'm obsessed with like, I'm obsessed with the complete contrasting of different truths and characters looking at the same thing in different angles and I'm also obsessed with multiple time frames so when you've got these two things happening it's a challenge to be like how do we keep the plot arc moving forward and we don't constantly digress and so that to me I mean I still feel like maybe that's not something I can worry about on a first draft um, I have to just kind of go with voice and layering but Dan and I really worked on in this book um, on what ends up really being important like just because it's interesting to the writer or it's interesting psychologically doesn't mean it needs to be in the book and that a lot of what exists in a book is, is kind of blank space a lot of what exists in a book is like what's not said and you know all books I mean especially I mean many people here have written memoir, memoirs like all books are curated things like if anyone tried to write the complete story of either a fictional character's life or their own life they'd have 97 phone books bound together you know what I mean so you have to get rid of things and so I I worked a lot on you know the things I needed to write my way into the book were not the same things that always needed to stay in the book for the benefit of the reader if I may, I think that's one of the greatest challenges. It's like there's a passion that makes us want to write a book. Right. Which is often largely irrelevant to right. what would make that that's book right. that's absolutely <laughs> interesting right. totally. to anyone else. Totally. Yeah. Eileen. Anyone else, yes. Um, so, as a lot of people here know, you were an editor for yes. a long time. For 20 years. Yes. Book and yes, Todd's. Long. Yes. Yes, exactly. So, after working with Mr. Sigma Tankak, First of all, would you would you consider ever editing a book in the future, and how would this experience maybe change the way that you handle editors' material? So, I'm a super bossy editor, just like Dan, um, and I I wanted to work with someone who was like that. I mean, I I am very hands-on and kind of obsessive and like talk to my writer as though their characters are real and I don't quite understand reality like you know so I, in many ways Dan is really similar to how I was and that was part of what I loved about him um, you know 
I'd love to still be editing books. I didn't get paid to edit books, unfortunately. Like, I mean, I was working in the nonprofit sector. I was a, you know, I founded my own indie press. I worked for a literary magazine. I worked for the Rumpus. I worked for the Nervous Breakdown. Like, all of these things were, you know, they they didn't pay. And so at the moment, I don't really have the option to do that. But editing other writers has been... You know, I mean, really the most rewarding thing in my entire literary life, honestly. I mean, you know, it's led to some of my most profound friendships and relationships, but it's also been just the biggest rush um, in terms of the creation of material. I would edit a book again in a heartbeat. I do do freelance editing, but it's not quite the same as when you're going to put the book out. Um, I would do it again in a heartbeat. It's just not paying the bills. So, yes. Yes. Do you ever um, struggle with rewriting, or are you able to like? I, I haven't written a book, so I don't know. Like, you go through and then you don't rewrite until you have a draft. Because I have that. Like, I write scripts, and I have a big struggle with trying to make things perfect in the beginning and you have a really nice beginning and you don't have a finished product? Yeah, I mean, I um, I teach, as as we all do, because this is not, um, <laughs> you know, we all need a day job. Um, but um, so, you know, one of the first things I tell my, my students is like, yeah, you want to do a little self-editing. I mean, you don't want it to be unintelligible and read like your diary but you really need to keep going yeah. like you need to keep going and I very much try to encourage people to get it out like you can write a first draft sometimes in just a few months of you know intense obsessive mania and like being where you can't think of anything else and it may take you three more years to edit that book into something that's going to get published but that shell that thing that comes out in a rush is important and if you keep stopping and you're belaboring and belaboring and you revise the first 50 pages 18 times like you're never going to finish that book like you are just like I mean, I won't say that. There are people that works for, but in in my experience, I feel like you need to get that book out. Like whatever is obsessing you that makes you, we're all delusional when we're writing a book, right? Like, oh, another book needs to be written and it has to be this. And I've got to say that, like whatever that crazy thing is, like you better get that out there right now. And then later you can worry about what form it really takes and how polished it is. So do you have no one read it while you're doing that first? Um, I wouldn't know. No, I don't have no one read it. I mean, Rob reads it. Um, uh, I have a writing group. Um, you know, certain people read it, but I, my agent doesn't read it, and I don't, like, view it as a finished product. So, yeah. You know, with all the teaching and, and um, editing, do you find it hard to look for pleasure? <laughs> and, and what have you read recently? Oh, I know what a good question. <laughs> with all your 
teaching and like, do you find it hard to like fill your car up with gas? Yes, I do. <laughs> it's, um, you know, I mean, yeah, it's really hard to read for pleasure because of course you're reading, I mean, you know, you have like a hundred students and you have like a blah, blah, blah. Um, I mean, in terms of time, I mean, do you ever find, find, is it hard to sit down and take off those other hats? It, yes. So recently, I mean, so this is a multi-layered question. First of all, like it's when you've been an editor for 20 years, it's hard to read anything without, I mean, I remember reading Mona Simpson's Anywhere But Here and like literally editing the thing as though I was going to like, I was going to publish the book. And I'm like, you know, the book's already published, right? Like, you don't need to do that. That's not helping her. You know, like, but I, that, I do that. Um, so that is kind of how I read. Um, but it's also been, reading is an interesting thing lately. Like, I've had a very tumultuous year and it's been really, difficult for me to read new fiction which is generally my passion generally my thing like my number one go-to thing but I've been finding that I have to read things where I already feel connected and as though I'm not reading a stranger as though I already know the person so sometimes that's nonfiction because I either know the author or I know the subject the situation but it's also taken the form of reading books that I first read 15 years ago um, where it's like, oh, I know you, I miss you, you know. And so, I mean, I've been teaching this class called Women on the Verge for Roosevelt University in Chicago. And I'm, you know, I'm rereading like Lithium for Medea and The Bell Jar and Blood and Guts in High School and The Lover and all these, you know, amazing books that I really hadn't read in a long time. I mean, books that blew the top of my head off in grad school and that era. Um, and that's been my first experience in the last year with really being able to obsessively read fiction. So right now the familiar is meaning a lot to me. One more and then we'll buy all of the copies of the book and Anybody? <laughs> yes, David. Um, Marissa Silva was here the other night. Yeah, I know, yeah. um, There was a discussion about theme, which sounds kind of annoying in the abstract, but she was saying, uh, we were talking about how the themes have emerged kind of since she's finished in the context of talking to audiences and and whatnot. And I wonder if you had that experience, how aware you are of themes and what what your book is really about. Um, You know, so, I mean, Milan Kundera has this quote where he basically talks about how we all write the same book over and over again in, in different ways. Like, you know, his is sort of like, what does the individual do when faced with totalitarianism? You know, like, and that we all kind of like circle our same essential themes um, and it manifests in terms of different characters and different plots and different time eras and all these you know different points of view things but they're all ultimately like we have our central questions our central obsessions um, and I think I've always been aware of that I mean um, I don't think that I think we learn a lot about reading reviews of our work, you know, hearing people talk about our work, but I also feel like I've always been kind of aware of what my 
obsessions are. I mean, and so this book really overtly interrogates kind of like class and race in ways that I've been obsessed with for a long time. Um, the continuum between sort of being a martyr and living your life for other people versus selfishness and the pursuit of desire, like that's been a theme in my work many times, you know, so so I mean I think that we keep we keep picking at things and going deeper and excavating more and um, you know, maybe we never get away from that. So thank you, Gina. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.